into our lives, into what's going on. Before we dive in, let's go ahead and just stand together as we read Psalm 90. Final chance to stretch our legs. And before we spend some time studying this, we stand together out of respect for the Word of God, out of respect for the fact that we are God's people, uh, together hearing God's voice, listening to His Word. Psalm 90, we believe these are the very words of God through His servant Moses. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, Thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever Thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, Thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return, ye children of men. For a thousand years in Thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as asleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth, it groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. For we are consumed by thine anger, and by thy wrath we are troubled. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told, or as the Hebrew has it, in a, in a moan, in a sigh. The days of our, your, of our years are threescore and ten. If by reason of strength they be fourscore, yet is their strength labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off, and we fly away. For who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? And let it repent thee concerning thy servants. O satisfy us early with thy mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands establish thou it. This is the word of God. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. According to the World Population Review, every single day in our world, 367,594 people are born. Okay, a lot of people, 367,000 people born every day. If you want to do the math, that's about 255 people per minute. 4.25 a second. At the same time, every day there's about 166,324 people who die each day. That's 166 people who die per minute. 1.93, that's a very specific number, 1.93 a second who die. And in between those two sort of poles of our lives, those two events between our birth and our death, Every single day, every single person gets one day older. You're like, I, I can tell, I can feel that this morning. Every day of our lives we undergo, we experience that process of growing older, of aging, of declining, and eventually dying. Every day of our lives, because we are subject to time, we are subject to change. Just think about a minute ago what you were doing 20 years ago. So that would be the year 2003. Um, how many of you remember 2003? Um, how many of you were not alive in 2003? Um, 
so you're doing nothing at that point. But just think 20 years ago, two decades, you're like, oh, I remember 2003 like it was yesterday. But think about how different you are today from where you were then. We're subject to change constantly through our lives. And the more you think about that reality, the more unsettling it is. The things that were like, this is stable and unchanging, it changes. Like, man, I put all my sort of the eggs in the, in the basket of my, my family life being stable. But all of us could probably give testimony to the fact that relationships we thought were rock solid ended up sort of crumbling. Uh, or institutions that were like, this will never change, this will always be solid, ends up being not solid. And ropes that we hung on to ended up being ropes of sand. Change decay around us, we see. Think about even something you built. You build a, a shed in your backyard, and here it is 10, 15 years later, and it's starting to, the termites have gotten to it. It's starting to decay. If you don't keep up with it, everything turns to decay. It's called entropy. We look around in our society around us, and we, we witness massive changes in technology. 20 years ago, nobody had even seen a smartphone before. I think if you were really cool, you had one of those little razor phones. Um, I think those were around in 2003. And then after that, you know, the BlackBerry, that was sort of the symbol of, like, being a very active, busy kind of professional. And then, boom, the smartphone comes out 2006, 2007. Like, massive changes we've seen in technology in just 20 years to where it's like, man, I can't keep up with this all. I'm just going to sort of stay put with where I'm at, and the rotary phone works for me. Uh, by the way, those of us who are, like, all techie right now with our iPhones, like 20 years from now, we might as well be using rotary phones because that's how fast things are, are changing. We've seen changes in public morals. 20 years ago, the vast majority of this country believed that marriage was between one man and one woman, and that was true of both parties on both ends of the political spectrum. Today, that's completely reversed. The majority in both parties, doesn't matter if you're conservative or progressive, are fine with that. Massive change, massive upheaval. We see massive changes in politics, in public morals, in the cost of things. You're like, man, I remember back when gas was, you know, $1.50 or something like that. Crazy, right? Standards of living change all around us on a personal level. Even just like take society, let's just think about our own lives. We experience huge changes in our lives. Every day, change. It's constant. Jobs change. Our homes change. We remodel them when all of a sudden you find out like pink drapes and floral patterns on the couches aren't actually in anymore, and we update that. And all the people who are updating one day, 20 years from now, people will be like, why was everybody going with open concept in the 2010s or whatever the case may be? Clothing styles change. Technologies change. Sports stars who were once great get injured and eventually retire. Politicians rise and fall. Relationships change. Friendships fray. Family moves away. There's really two big facts that we sort of wrestle with as we go through life. One of them is our mortality. We're going to die. That's why everything changes. We're moving towards that. And the other one is our mutability, the fact that we change. They're related. And both stand in stark contrast to the God who never changes because he's eternal. And so maybe if that introduction was kind of depressing to you, that's exactly kind of the idea. Yes, everything's changing, sort of decaying, moving towards, towards death. But we have a God who lives forever, and that's the one place we put our hope as Christians. So if you're here today and you're feeling sort of this anxiety, this unease about all of the change and the chaos going on in our world, man, this message is for you. Maybe you're someone who looks at life and you're like, 
man, if you kind of think about it, you're born, you grow up, you live, you die, and there's generations after you can do that. It really seems pretty pointless. What is the point of all this? This psalm is for you. This psalm is for the, the mom who is standing there staring at an empty bedroom. You're like, where did the time go? It's for a husband who's trying to navigate another job change. Or the senior saint who's looking back at life and wondering, how did it go by so fast? For the parents who are feeling unsettled, wondering what kind of world their kids are going to grow up in. For the young adult who's just finishing high school or college, who's bristling with ambition and excitement, ready to take on the world and life and live life. That's a psalm for the teenager who's sort of coming into their own and figuring out what really matters in life. This is a, this is a psalm for the, the conservative who longs for the stability of the good old days that are now long gone. And it's also for the utopian who longs for the arrival of some golden age in the future, like one day it's going to be great. This is a psalm for the disillusioned thinker, the person who spends a lot of time sort of thinking deeply, who's horrified by the suffering in our world and all the death and the pointlessness seemingly of it all. It's a psalm for the person just bewildered by the break, the breakneck speed of change in, in our world. It's a psalm that's wrestling with the core questions of, uh, of existence, life, death, eternity. Deep stuff here. And think about who it's written by. The, the, the heading here, which I believe is part of the inspired text, says that it is a psalm of Moses, the man of God. Now, this is unusual. Moses does not write any of the other psalms. But we do know he has poetic ability. If you read Exodus 15, you read the end of Deuteronomy, he has the ability to write beautiful poetry. But think about this. Here's a, here's a guy who lived a long life, 120 years, according to the, the testimony of the Bible. Yet even for him, he's like, life is like you fall asleep and you wake up and it's over. You know, you sort of fall, you wake up in the middle of a dream. You can't remember the dream. That is your life. Here's a guy who saw his fair share of death, sees the entire Egyptian army drowned in the Red Sea. That's a lot of death. He leads the nation of Israel with their one point whatever million people out into the wilderness. They rebel against God and God says, all right, guys, for the next 40 years, you're going to walk around in circles until an entire generation dies. Say there's 1.2 million or so people in Israel over 40 years. Those are thousands of deaths every year. There's a lot of corpses that he would have seen laying out in the desert sand as he wandered around. And death that was the result, the very direct result, of the nation's rebellion against God. So here's a guy who sees the futility of here we are walking around in circles and everybody's just dying. And we don't have a home. We're living in tents, and we're going from one place to the next, and there's just change and decay and death all around me. God, would you be our dwelling place? The only thing that's stable in the middle of this wilderness is the promise of God. And, beloved, that's where you and I live. We live in the middle of a wilderness. This is not home. We're on our way home, right? We're, we're in the van sort of heading home. A little bit of squabbling in the back seat. But there's a very real sense that we're not going to live here. Our, 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 this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. We are pilgrims on our way to the promised land. We're on our way home. So how do we live while we're in the wilderness? How do we live while we're wrestling with these questions and we're wrestling with the constant change in our lives and the upheaval and the fact that nothing really feels stable? How do we live a meaningful life? in a world that often feels so meaningless, that feels sometimes so absurd. 
some big realities that we've got to come to grips with. And that is what this psalm is about. To man, I want to live a meaningful life. I want to be able to live to the glory of God. I love how the psalm begins and ends. It begins and ends with God. And then in the middle is all the depressing stuff about the fact that we're mortal and that we're under God's judgment. So let's start off here with this first reality. The first reality we've got to come to grips with, that we've got to lean on, that we've got to, we've got to hold on to. A rope, by the way, that is not made of sand, is God's eternity. Verse, verses 1 and 2. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting eternity past to everlasting to eternity future, you are. God, you are. You exist. This is what we've got to come to grips with. God is our eternal hope and help. That's what we sang about in, oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. That's a riff, a meditation on Psalm 90. Here we are living in a world of constant change, but verses 1 and 2 say there's one reality that does not change, and that is God because he is eternal. You see, change is a function of the fact that we are time-bound. We experience change because we experience the passage of time. A God who is eternal does not experience the passage of time and therefore does not change. For you and me, we see hairlines recede and waistlines expand. We see change all the time. We see seasons change, everything change. But here's Israel wandering the wilderness, and they say, God, you've been our dwelling place. Even though we might pitch our tent in a different part of the desert tonight, we have a dwelling place, a home. It doesn't move. An address that never changes, and that is God. Now, that word dwelling place could be the idea of refuge or protection, like a fortress or a bunker. But it has this nuance here of a place where you live, where you dwell. So don't think like a concrete bunker with sandbags on it that's really sparse and spartan. Think a home that is well defended. All right, so don't think sort of a, dr a drafty castle that's like, yep, that's our dwelling place. The arrows can't get through, but there's not many creature comforts. Think of home. God, you've been our home. Difference between a house and a home, right? Home's like, this is where you live. He's saying, God, you are our eternal home. It conveys stability. In a world of instability and change, God is the dwelling place of his people. In the Hebrew, okay, translated thou in, the, in our King James, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. That is brought forward in the Hebrew to say, God, you and only you are our home. God and God alone is personally the protector, the dwelling place of his people. And notice he says in all generations, there's, there's a lot of talk today, people analyzing, you know, Gen X sort of acts this way, and the millennials are that, this way over here, and now there's Gen Z coming along, and next will be Gen Alpha, and each have these different characteristics and are so different. And sometimes here's what happens in sort of um, church leadership conversations, like, man, we've got to just change everything to reach Gen Z, like, they're totally different, they don't understand any of these things. And maybe there's some truth to that. I'm of the persuasion people are people are people. And yeah, there's some unique characteristics for generations, but people are people. All right? That's the de demographic. What demographic are we trying to reach, by the way? People made in the image of God. Um, but here's the point. God, even though generations change, and there are these unique characteristics, like someone who lived and grew up in the 50s is different than someone who grew up with a smartphone in their hand. We get that. But here's the one thing that never changes. No matter what generation alpha looks like or when we get on down to beta or gamma or delta, on down the alphabet, God never 
changes. He's the dwelling place, the protector, the home of his people. Through every generation, whether you're talking about Abraham or Moses or David or Solomon or Isaiah or Peter or Augustine or Martin Luther or Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or Billy Graham, he is our God, the same God. And just remind us of that. We know that that's true, church, but sometimes we forget that, right? We, we think, man, back God used to do these things way back then, but now God's sort of on the shelf somewhere. No, we've got the same God. We worship the same God as previous generations. This is where we, where, we, where we run in a world of change. You see, some people go different directions. Some people literally, like, go to a bunker. Like, hey, we've got to be ready for all the change. Some people will run into technology to be like, this is where I'm going to go as my escape hatch from a world that's really chaotic that I don't understand. Other people run into addictions. People go all different places to try to find refuge and sort of a sense of safety and a sense of control in a world we can't really control. Here's the Christian response, is you run to God who is our home in every generation. Now verse 2 goes on to say not only is he our eternal home, but he's our eternal creator. Before the mountains were brought forth, you can't really think of anything more stable than mountains. You look out at the mountains, we don't have any here in, in, um, in Mobile, but out west where I grew up, you look west from where I grew up, you can see the Bradshaw Mountains. There's Mount Union. And Mount Union looks exactly the same today as when I lived there. It's not gotten any taller, any shorter. It's sort of the epitome of what is stable. Or Granite Mountain. Look out my dad's office at Embry-Riddle. There's Granite Mountain. This big hunk of granite. Uh, just there it is. If you want to sort of epitomize stuff that doesn't change, there's a mountain, a big hunk of granite, nobody's going to move it. He's saying before the mountains even showed up, before, before there were any hills, before there was any dirt, before there was anything, before the mountains were brought forth, and this is the language, this is birth language that is being used here. Or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, before the, the earth the world had been given its beginning, sort of had been birthed by the hand of God. Before there was creation itself, before there was a heaven, before there was an earth, before there was time, space, or matter, before there was light, before there were stars, before there was anything that we call sort of reality or the universe, there was God. Hard thought to get our mind around because we're like, well, we just sort of imagine God back before stuff, there he is in space. No, there's not even space. Before there's space, before there's time, before there's matter, before there's anything, there's God. By the way, the universe has to have a beginning. Right, We're undergoing the sequence of time. That's going to have a start at some point, and there's got to be someone who started that. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The universe has a beginning, but God does not. There must be a cause for everything we see that itself does not have a cause. The cause for nature cannot be found within nature. It's got to be found outside of it. That, by definition, is what God is. But he's not just a force. He's a person. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place. Not just the force that's out there. No, he's personal. From everlasting to everlasting, your God. Now think about Moses, what he knew of God. There's this climactic revelation that he has. He's out on the backside of the desert for 40 years herding sheep. There's a burning bush. God's like, you're going to go back to Egypt, rescue the people. And he asks God, what's your name? He says, my name is I am that I am. Now, the idea of that is God is like, I just am. There's not a, I was, and I am now, and I will be. No, God is just eternally present. 
The, the, the force of what he's saying there is, I'm not subject to time at all. I'm not dependent on anything in the creation. Rather, the creation depends on me. That's what God is saying. God is not dependent on anybody or anything outside of himself for his existence, for his nature. Everything we know depends on something else. So I'm a self-made person. Well, your mom had to give birth to you, right? Like, no, you're not really self-made. Everything we, ha- everything we know has a beginning, has a cause, has something that it depends on, but not God. God's not dependent on you and me. He doesn't need you and me. He doesn't require our approval to do what he does in the universe. Everything that God does comes from his own nature, from his own heart, from his own desire, from his own will, and nobody can stop him. Nobody can determine what he does. I am that I am. But it also means this, that God never, ever changes. I had, uh, we had uh, Brandon read Malachi 3. I am the Lord, I change not. The God who is eternal in both directions, who's over time, who doesn't experience time, never, ever changes. That is mind-blowing. We cannot wrap our mind around that because everything we know changes. But God does not. One commentator says this, because God transcends all that is in the world, nothing in the world can truly threaten his people. So this seems like kind of high-flying theology, whatever. No, beloved, our very salvation depends on the fact we've got a God who's never going to have his promises terminated by time. It depends on us having a God who is never going to die, and most importantly, a God who's never going to change. If any of God's eternal plan depended on you and me, we would ruin it, right? If it depended on us in any way, but it doesn't, it depends only on him. But this God who is eternal, who stands behind everything, who creates everything, who's unchanged, you might hear that and be like, well, that sounds like God's a big rock. The text here very, very clearly views this God who is eternal and uncaused and unchanging as personal. Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place, a God to whom we can speak, a God who enters into a relationship with sinners like you and me. Now, if God never changes, that means if we're going to have a relationship with God, we must change, not God. We must repent. We must be regenerated. We must be transformed. The unchanging God seeks out a relationship with changing humanity. The eternal God sets his love upon us who will live a brief 70, 80 years on this earth and say, I'm going to give you my life. He becomes our dwelling place. And that, beloved, we, we started off singing today, immortal, invisible, God only wise, and then we went to singing day by day. You know what gives meaning to day by day is the fact there is a God who is eternal. That's the bedrock of sanity and stability in a world that's always changing, the unchanging backdrop behind our daily march towards death, the undying eternal God, the everlasting arms that are underneath. We come to the second reality, though. This is one here is the most troubling. To live this meaningful life, we've got to come to grips with God's eternity. We've got to come to grips with our mortality, with life's brevity, shortness. To verse 3, it says, Thou, speaking to God, you turn man to destruction. Thou sayest, return ye children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it's past. The point here is that death is certain. Um, And by the way, verse 3 makes it very clear, God is the one who is ultimately in control over life and death. You say to man, uh, you you turn man to destruction, to death, to to our, our end. Return you children of men. Literally, you, you children of Adam, 
Our, our first father sinned, and so we are now sinners, and because we're sinners, we, we die. Uh, verse 3, that word translated destruction is literally, literally the word dust. Does it not remind you of Genesis 3? God makes man out of the dust, that when man sins, God says, you're going to return to the dust, for dust thou art, to dust thou shalt return. In other words, we die. Death is certain because sin is universal. Because we are born into this world with a sin nature and we experience the sentence of death upon us. Death is rooted in our rebellion. And this is really behind everything that ultimately declines. This is it. This is why empires fail. This is why roofs, roofs leak, why pipes burst, why engines seize up, why structures decay. Is because our world is under a curse that's been brought about by sin. And yes, there's physical processes at work that our bodies wear down and eventually we die. But what this text is saying is ultimately behind death is the great judge. Nobody just dies and God's like, hmm, didn't see that coming. Every death is a sentence against sin. God's the one who gives every life. We have no problem with that. But we sometimes struggle emotionally with the fact God is the one who takes every life. There's not some grim reaper running around who's doing things apart from God. God is the one who has the sole right over life and death. It's the result of sin. Now, verses 4 to 6 make the point that life, death's not only certain, but life is short. Comparison to God, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday. You can maybe think about moving through Genesis, which Moses wrote. There's a reference to the fall in, in verse 3. Then you go along to, to Genesis 5, where you get the, these genealogies. And you've got a guy who almost lives a thousand years, Methuselah. Think about it, the longest life ever recorded in, a, anywhere in the, in the Bible. He's like, that's like yesterday when it's passed. Yesterday does not feel like it was that long ago. It's like, boom, wow, there that was. Uh, verse 4 goes on. Um, it's like yesterday when it's passed. It's as a watch in the night. So you fall asleep, and you wake up in the morning, and you have no sense that time has passed. That's the idea. By the way, this is not giving us a sort of mathematical formula to say, Hmm, there's seven days in the creation week and a day to God's like a thousand years, therefore the world's going to last a thousand years. Okay, that's not how we use a text like this. The second part of the verse makes that pretty clear. It's just giving us a comparison to say, God does not experience time. And what we think is a really long time is not a really long time. Think about a thousand years ago, the year 1023. Wow, that's a long time ago. The United States doesn't exist. We've only been around for 200 some years. Uh, Columbus hasn't, hasn't sailed yet. The Protestant Reformation has not happened. You're in the middle of, like, the Crusades and coming into the high Middle Ages. Man, you're like, that seems like a really long time ago. And God's like, yeah, that's just like yesterday when it's past. There it is. How much more than are our lives, which are but 70 or 80 years, as we see later on in the text, how much more are those just like a vapor that appears a little while and vanishes away? Starting to get cooler mornings. Might be cold enough Tuesday when it's supposed to be 45. Go outside and, and you see that little vapor and it disappears. James says, that's what your life is like. It does not last long. It is short. It flies by. That's the point that's being made in verses 4, 5, and 6. You see, all history to God is just like a drop of water in the ocean. It's, it's nothing compared to his eternity. Verse 5, you carry them away as with a flood. It's like a flash flood that comes and sweeps you away, and boom, that's it. Death is like a sleep. 
Okay, that's a common metaphor for death in the Bible. And then the end of verse 5 into verse 6, this comparison to grass. In a, in a desert climate, you, you, the grass springs up in the morning, the sun comes out, and it scorches it, and the grass dies. It does not last long. Yes, there's beauty to it. Yes, there's meaning to it. But at the end of the day, it does not last long. That's our lives. Our lives are short. Just go walk through a cemetery sometime. And there's all these lives that people live that are full of sort of meaning, but we don't know who they are. Go walk down Magnolia Cemetery, downtown Mobile. And here's somebody with a big grand tombstone who apparently was important that we've never even heard of before. But here's his life. There's a date and a date and a dash in between. That's it. Death is certain. Life is short. We've got to come to grips with that. That's what he's driving at in verse 12. Teach us to number our days. When you're young, I'm on the younger end of things. You feel like, man, i got my whole life ahead of me. This is great. I'm going to do all of these things. But then you get to the end of it and you realize, man, that went by so fast. All right, some of you who have lived some decades, you're like, oh, yeah, it gets faster and faster. You know, they say that as far as the way you experience it, like the first 10, 11, 12 years of your life feels like about half your life. Remember when you were a kid, like it took forever for Christmas to get there. And now you're like, wait, it's, 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 already, it's already October, like what's going on here? It does actually get faster as we go through because you sort of experience more of the the, the the markers along the way. But the point being, teach us to number our days. Teach us to realize that every day I'm living is taking me one step closer to eternity, one step closer to my death, one step closer to standing before my God. We like to push that thought out of our minds. In fact, psychologically, our, our brains sort of train ourselves. When you go to a funeral, you hear about somebody dying, you're like, oh, man, that's horrible. That'll never happen to me. But we need to have the sense that one day that is going to be me lying in that casket. One day it's going to be me who is put into the ground, and there will be a stone on top of my, uh, on top of my remains that will have a date, a dash, and a date. Not to be morbid, not to be like, oh, we're all going to die, but to have a sober approach to life to realize what really matters. What really matters in life? You know, what really matters in life is not really trying to get as much stuff as humanly possible that you cannot take with you when you die. You know, the Egyptians used to have this idea where you would bury all the treasure with the king so he would have stuff to have in the afterlife. You kill a bunch of slaves so he has slaves to attend him. No, you don't take anything with you. What matters in life is not Man, how much more? How many more shows can I get in this evening on Netflix? Like nobody is lying on their deathbed, being like, "Man, I wish I binged watch one more season." That's not. That's not what matters. What ultimately matters is the relationship with God and preparing for eternity. In large sense, in a large sense, life is simply just the dress rehearsal for eternity. One day the curtain is going to go up. One day you will breathe your last, and you will step out onto the stage for the real deal, which is. Eternity, somewhere forever. It's certain. But we've got to go further into this. Why is it that everybody dies? Why is it that life is short? Why? We've got to come to grips with a, with a third reality. And this is the one that underlies the second. Why is it that life is brief and man is mortal? Number three, it's because of God's judgment. It's this penalty against sin. That's the third reality we must come to grips with. Sin's penalty. God's wrath against sin. So notice verse 7. 
Why is it that this happens? We get this, we get this explanatory word, for. Okay, when you see the word for, it's like, here's an explanation. Maybe the, the reason for what he just said, or maybe the cause for what was just said. Why is it that life is short? Why is it that death is certain? It's not just because of some kind of biological flaw in our makeup. For we are consumed by what? Thine anger. And by thy wrath we are troubled. It's God's anger, it's God's wrath, it is God's judgment against sin that brings about every single death that has ever happened in history. So sometimes we read stories in the Bible about, say, Uzzah, for example. Here he is going along, they got the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, and it starts to rock, and he reaches out his hand, he touches the Ark of the Covenant, and God strikes him dead just like that. And we're like, man, it's horrible. Or those guys in the Old Testament who rebel against God and the ground opens up, swallows them, they, they fall, and God like directly intervenes to take their lives. Or Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, if you think that's just nasty Old Testament stuff, they lie to the Holy Spirit and immediately God strikes them dead. And you're like, that's just horrible. I can't believe God would do that. Theologically, according to the Bible, every single death, whether it is somebody who dies in a missile strike or somebody who dies at the end of a long and fruitful life, whether it is a baby who dies in infancy, every single death is because of the reality of sin. So Romans 5.12 says that death entered the world because of sin, right? The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And it's not just personal sin. I'm not talking about, man, you did something bad, and so God's going to strike you. The fact that we are really all united in Adam in his sin, we're the sons of Adam according to verse 3, the reason that we die, the reason why we experience constant change is because we are under God's wrath as sinners. So why death? Moses links human death directly to divine wrath. He links mortality to our morality, right? We experience death because of our sin. Now, what does it mean by wrath? Wrath is not God's unbridled rage where he's like, that's it, you guys have done enough, and I'm just going to really bring the hammer down on you. God's wrath, as we saw last week, is an expression of his holiness because he is holy and perfect and righteous. He has to hate sin. He has to judge sin. And he told Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. And not just for Adam, but all those who are Adam's descendants. Now, verse 8, you might think, man, that seems really rough that everybody dies because everybody's a sinner. But my sin really can't be that bad. Look at verse 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Like, our sin that we commit that we're like, and it's not really a big deal. I wasn't even thinking about God. It's as if you're standing before the very face of God doing the thing that he most hates, sort of waving a fist in his face saying, I dare you. That's what sin is doing because we are always living before the face of God because we are always living in the very presence of God. Every sin that we commit is committed as it were in the very presence of an infinitely holy God. So imagine it this way. Say you have a really pious, godly grand, grandmother. You would never dream of cussing in her presence. It's like, I would never do that. Yet you roll into her presence and you just let it rip and say the things that would be most horrifying to her ears. Oh, I'd never do that if I were in her presence. The reality is we are always in the presence of a holy God. And our sin is far more grievous to him 
than cursing would be to even the most godly grandma. So verse 8 makes it clear, God's wrath is not unjustified. It is well-deserved. The wages of sin is death because God is holy and we are sinners who have stand in rebellion against him. You're like, my sin's not that bad. Just measure yourself by the standard of God's holy law, the Ten Commandments. Every lie we tell is not just a lie spoken to another person bearing God's image. It's defiance against a God who is absolute truth. We look at others with lust. We take what is not ours. We set up other gods in our hearts that we worship more than God. Ten out of ten of the Ten Commandments we are living in violation of. And so verses 9, 10, and 11 make this point. Our days are passed away in thy wrath. In other words, when you are not right with God, when you are, are not in Christ, Every day you're living under under his wrath, waiting for his judgment to fall. Now let me just add this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this does not describe what your life is like. According to Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, the wrath that would abide on our heads, the the judgment that we would rightly deserve, has been poured out on Jesus Christ, and we do not face the wrath of God. God is propitious. God is satisfied. God is delighted in us, not because of us being good, but because of Christ. But without Jesus, every day is lived, waiting for God's wrath to, to, to fall upon us. This ongoing reality. So so verse 10 says our lives are 70, 80 years. They're short. But even the best of them, the strength of them, is hard. You know, life is short, death is certain, and life is also hard. Right? That's just reality. Life is hard. You're like, man, I've had a really good life. But if you step back and sort of, yeah, there was that one time that we just went through a really rough patch in our marriage. Or, man, remember this where we were just strapped financially, couldn't make make payments? And I spent those three weeks in the hospital And then these loved ones passed away, and all of us have hard lives because we live in a fallen world. That's what Moses is saying. Even the best years of our lives have hardship. Verse 11, who knows the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Here's the point. The physical suffering we feel as sort of the edges of God's wrath against us, sort of the we're all going to die one day, and a lot of the pain we feel is simply that process beginning to work. Why does God allow us to go through so much physical suffering? Why? So we would fear him, we would reverence him, we would turn to him. All suffering in this world, physical suffering, is intended by God to help us see our spiritual need. That's what Jesus gets at in in, in Luke 13. A tragedy anywhere is a call to everywhere, to repent and to turn to him. Physical hardship is designed to awaken spiritual hunger. So life's shortness and life's suffering and life's hardship are meant to help us realize, I deserve God's wrath. I am going to die. I'm going to one day stand before this God. I need to reverence him. I need to turn to him in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 12 brings the point home. In light of the fact that life is short, that death is certain, that we deserve God's wrath because of our sin, what do we do? Teach us to number our days. Help us understand how short our lives are. Why? So we can be more productive and get further along in our goals and get more pay raises and promotions at work. No, no, no. This is not about just productivity for productivity. This is not just about more efficiency and getting more things off the to-do list and off the task list and making sure everything in your Franklin Covey plan looks really good. The point here is 
Teach us a number of days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And what's wisdom? Wisdom is living in light of the realities we just talked about. God's eternal. Life's really, really short. I deserve God's judgment. And a meaningful life is only found in a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's what matters, is living for eternity, living in light of the fact that we were going to one day stand before God. Teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. But the final reality here is expressed in verses 13 to 17, where we go from sort of a lament to a petition. If you think about the way the psalm is put together, verses 1 and 2 talk about the fact that God is eternal. Then part 2 talks about the fact that we are are mortal, and the issue of our morality, so our mortality, our morality. And then on the outside, we have God's grace. And each of them speak to those realities in the middle. So our brevity, our the life, the shortness of our lives, contrasts with God's eternity. And our sin contrasts with God's grace. So parts one and two speak to each other, and parts three and four speak to each other. So here we go. Return, O God, O Lord, how long, and let it repent thee concerning thy servants. Let it repent thee could also be re- rendered this way. Show compassion. It's a prayer for God to show his compassion. Then verse 14, to satisfy us early with thy, thy mercy, your, your covenant loyalty, your love, your grace. So show us compassion. Show us grace. Make us glad according to the days wherein thou hast afflicted us. So give us good days to match the bad days. Wherein we have the years wherein we have seen evil. And verse 16, let thy work appear to thy servants, thy glory to their children. God, show us your good, your, your working again on our behalf. You think about the generation in the wilderness. They saw God rain down plagues on Egypt. They saw God split open the Red Sea. They walked out on dry ground. They, they ate the manna from heaven. And then they experienced 40 years of God's judgment in the wilderness. This is a prayer, God, for the next generation to come. Let them experience once again your working and your goodness. By the way, they did. That generation that rose up got to see God split open the Jordan. They got to see the walls of Jericho come down and the land conquered. This could change by God's grace. If we're going to live a meaningful life, we've got to grip God's eternity. We've got to grip life's brevity. We've got to grip sin's penalty. But on this last point, it's not so much something we grasp rather than something that grasps us. We've got to be gripped by God's grace. God's grace has got to take hold of us and change us and redeem us. So it says, God, give us compassion. Now, you'll notice that word in verse 13, return. It's the same word that's in verse 3. You turn or return man to, to dust. It's almost saying as a, a, a structurally, let's reverse what I was talking about in verse 3. Verse 3 is saying, God, you're going to turn all of humanity back to dust. Everybody's going to die. This you're saying, but God, would you one day reverse that? I see verse 13 embedded in the text as a hope of one day death being done away with. This is a hope one day of a resurrection, of death one day being banished, death one day dying Death one day being destroyed by the great life giver, by the one who lived and died on a cross, was buried, and then rose again three days later, and is one day going to resurrect all of his people. Verse 3, verse 13, using the same word. Everybody's going to die, verse 3, but God, would you one day reverse it, verse 13. Now, verse 14, satisfy us early with thy mercy. The word early is in the morning. Satisfy us in the morning. 
Well, we saw that in verse, verses 5 and 6. In the morning we grow up and then we wither away like grass. But here, instead of the morning be just sort of a, oh, here we go again, the morning is a time of renewed hope. There's all this reversing going on by God's grace to the earlier parts of the psalm. Satisfy us in the morning with your covenant loyalty, with your grace. I love that. You know, a lot of times we get to the end of our days and we look back and be like, what did I accomplish? But perhaps a Christian approach to time is anticipating God's favor, not at the end of the day, but at the beginning of the day. Say, God, I don't know what's going to happen today, but would your grace surround and shower me? Not looking back on what I accomplished at the end of the day, but anticipating at the beginning of the day what God has accomplished by his grace. And the result of that is we will rejoice and be glad all our days. Earlier he said, all our days are lived under your wrath. But now he's saying, under your grace we can have gladness and joy. doesn't mean that life is any easier, physically speaking. But it means that instead of saying, man, I'm going through hardship, it's because of God's wrath. As I'm going through the hardship with God's grace. That's what that word mercy is, the idea of grace. Now, what is grace? Grace is undeserved favor. It's generosity. It's gift. It's not something that we earn. Everybody is looking for satisfaction. You're running hard after it. I want to feel satisfied. I want to feel fulfilled. I want my life to feel meaningful. And some people look for that in their job performance. Man, if I can stay there long enough, earn seniority, get early retirement, then I'll be satisfied. Other people find their satisfaction. If I get enough people to like me and to think that I'm awesome and if I can be really popular, they'll be satisfied. Some people say, if I can construct my own identity, then get all of society to sort of put their brains out the window to, to, to celebrate my identity, then I'll be satisfied. That is so exhausting. To try to find satisfaction through your achievement. We live in a world that, whether it's through meritocracy, if you achieve, you can, you can have it all. Or whether it is th- sort of through victimization, if you sort of are higher on the intersectional pyramid, you can, ha- you can sort of be loved by society. Both of those are looking to human achievement. But real satisfaction is found in realizing you are accepted by grace in a relationship with God. What an answer to what our world is looking for, people running on this treadmill trying to find meaning. And here's Moses saying, it's God's grace that gives you meaning. A relationship with God through Christ. Getting off the treadmill of effort and resting in the achievement of Jesus Christ. That's true satisfaction. Verse 15 says, here's joy. We're going to pray for joy. Make us glad. And this here is just asking for parity. It's just saying, God, we had so many bad days. Would you at least give us an equal number of good days? But I love how the New Testament takes this and amplifies it. In the New Testament, here's how Paul puts it. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, the bad days, but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God does not just give us an equal number of good days to match our bad days when we get to heaven and be like, well, you had about a thousand rough days on earth, so you get about a thousand good days in heaven and that'll be it. No, he gives us all of eternity to rejoice in his presence, and it is so much more than the brief moments we have of suffering and hardship in this life. Verses 16 and 17 are praying for God's lasting glory. God, show your work again to, to the, this next generation. Let the beauty, the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. What a contrast to everything is just sort of being swept away like a flood and it's withering around like the grass. God, would you establish, make it concrete, make it firm, make it lasting. The works of our hands. Establish the work of our hands. 
in a world of impermanence, in a world of constant change, we pray, God, would you establish the work of our hands, the things that our hands do. And he's not just talking about you know, spiritual things where we pray. That will last for eternity. We're talking about mundane stuff like washing dishes and driving nails. We're talking about the stuff we do day in and day out. He's saying, God, would you establish that and make it of eternal value? See, when God is our dwelling place, even the ordinary things matter. Even the ordinary things can be done to the glory of God. Stuff that nobody will remember. The buildings you, the houses you might make that 10 years from now will be bulldozed. The changes you make at work that will be swept away in the next, you know, the next CEO who comes in. They may not last from a human perspective, but if they are done for the glory of God, they will be eternally rewarded. So whether you wire houses or build boats or balance books or crunch numbers or create art or mow lawns or move dirt or teach kids or keep house or design houses, all of these things can be done to the glory of God and can matter for eternity when they are done for God. So the meaningful life is not found by trying to cram as many experiences into the 70 years you have on earth. Let me get as many trips in as I can and go to as many cool places as I can. As good as that is, it's not found by frantically accumulating all you possibly can. It's not even found by, let's create as many memories as we possibly can, memories that will one day be eaten away. No, it is found by living life for what will last, living for the glory of God, living life as God's gift, living life as the front porch of eternity. So how do we live? Live in light of eternity. How do we live? Live in light of God's grace. That's what this final prayer is all about. Not about me achieving, that'll give me meaning, but rather the achievement of another that is given to me as a gift. The death of Jesus on the cross, that's the answer to the problem of God's wrath against our sin that we rightly deserve. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that's the answer to the brevity of life and the certainty of death. There's somebody who has beaten death and has given that gift of eternal life to us. So if we're going to have a meaningful life, it's going to be found by taking God's rescue by faith. It's going to be accepting that gift by faith and living in light of it. Came across a great illustration of faith, and I'll, I'll close with this. From the attacks in Israel about a, a week ago, Amir Tibon is an Israeli journalist who was living in a small community on the Israel-Gaza border, and he was out of reach of the Iron Dome missile defenses. He survived the, the attacks over the last week and was able to evacuate. And he sat down with an interview with the Atlantic, and he gives his firsthand account, and this is just a portion of it. He says, when the attacks were going on, he says, I called my father. My father is a retired general. He's 62 years old. He lives in Tel Aviv. And my parents told me, we're coming. It's an hour and 20-minute drive. Now, this goes against all logic, but I told myself, okay, right now I'm asking my two young daughters to put complete faith in me and my wife and their parents to do what we're telling them to do in order to save their lives, which is to be very quiet and understand that we cannot get out of the room. We cannot go get food. We cannot go to the bathroom. We cannot go out to play. And I'm asking them to put their faith in me completely. So here they are waiting, the terrorists coming, hiding out. And I told myself, I have to do the same thing right now. I have to put my trust in my father, who is a trust.